Hello, I'm Kendra Winchester, here with Samaya Nassim, and this is Reading Women, a podcast inviting you to reclaim the bookshelf and read the world. Today, we're talking about our discussion picks, Quicksand and The Unquiet Dead. You can find a complete transcript of this episode on our website, readingwomenpodcast.com. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. Well, we are back for round two discussing crime fiction, which I think we have pretty much surmised has also inspired us to go like read more crime fiction because I don't know if I want to call this episode inspiring per se, but it's definitely getting me in that kind of itch that happens around spooky season and all sorts of things, even though we've already read a bunch of books for this theme. Yeah, I mean, I feel like I've been avoiding reading thrillers and crime fiction over the past um, almost two years because of the pandemic. But now I feel like, okay, I need to read this. I need to explore more because I used to enjoy it so much, you know, in the way that you enjoy a book about murders and bad things happening. (laughs) Yeah, I definitely want to like rekindle my love for crime fiction. And it's definitely started with this theme. Like it's helped me get back into that zone. Yeah, same, same. And I think, and we discussed this, but I think Quicksand is my first Scandinavian crime novel, which I'm like, really? But I was looking back to my Goodreads and I am pretty sure that's true. So it's like a whole new world. Yeah, I've read uh, quite a few Scandinavian crime novels and it's definitely one of my favorite subgenres. So I'm excited for you. And just to let other people know, it, it can get quite dark and gritty and disturbing and graphic so you know be prepared but um before we jump into our discussion on the crime genre because we were very excited to chat about that um some updates so we have um the updates on the jcb prize will be linked in our show notes we don't actually know what that is as of this recording, but uh, you all in the future will know, so we will link that down in the show notes for you. Also, we will mention our Patreon. So our Patreon is very important as it keeps the lights on and pays for production costs and our transcripts. It, it makes everything as accessible as possible, and uh, we greatly appreciate to all, all of our patrons and the support they give us. We have a wonderful little community over on Patreon. We have a quarterly book club and exclusive Patreon episodes, lots of like Fur Baby Friday updates, which is adorable. Ruth Ann does a lot behind the scenes. And so while you might not see her on social media or uh, in a regular newsletter or on the podcast per se, she does a lot as far as organizing and keeping everyone straight and scheduled and all of this stuff. And so I greatly appreciate her work. Also love her Patreon newsletter that she puts out. Of course, also with her dog, Ted, who we love. So anyway, please check out our Patreon, which will be linked in our show notes. And uh, you can go check out all of those exclusives. Now we are going to recap our theme and talk about how women uh, are changing the crime genre or maybe more their unique take on the crime genre and how women write crime fiction and what that looks like. Yeah, I mean, um, I'm not sure if everyone is aware of this, but there is just there's definitely been a surge in women writing crime, especially in the last five or six years 
And actually, even before that, I've read some sources that say that for the past 15 years, women have been writing a lot of crime. And that has definitely changed the landscape of crime fiction. And to the extent that, and we laughed about this earlier, that male crime writers now feel the need to use female pseudonyms. What are your thoughts on that, Kendra? I think it's, I mean, I I think it's ridiculous. Like, that's it. I I remember when Riley Sager, uh, that whole thing came out that he was actually using a pseudonym and he was a guy and how disappointed a lot of mystery and thriller lovers were when they thought they had found this amazing, you know, women crime, you know, thriller writer. And yeah, it was, I remember it being a whole thing. And so a lot of interesting pieces have come out about it as well. Yeah, and actually there's uh, quite a few crime novelists who've recently become quite popular and they're, they have ambiguous kind of names. So writers like S.J. Watson, J.P. Delany, S.K. Tremaine, and A.J. Finn, all of these writers are actually men, but you get the impression that maybe it's a female crime writer. In perhaps in the way that the book is packaged or, you know, marketed. So I find it really ironic that this has become the new trend, um, considering the history of women writing and, you know, women in publishing and how they've been marginalized, you know, as, as writers, because their work is not taken as seriously. And now women are pretty much leading the changes within the crime genre. And I think um, it's fascinating that when you read a lot of the books by male crime writers, there is this hero complex that features quite prominently. Or you have the femme fatale who, you know, is this um, terrible woman who leads men astray or something. And (laughs) compare that to what you find in women who write crime novels women kind of focus more on the human element and like the human condition and what drives people to do terrible things and perhaps also how this affects women. And as a woman, you know, we all know the dangers that we face in our everyday lives. So I feel like when a woman is writing crime, there is that intimacy of knowledge and experience that really colors the way that the narrative unfolds and the, the, the way that the reader then understands the position of um, the characters. Whether they're victims or whether they're the perpetrators, there's a lot of like complexity involved. And I feel like the characters written by women are usually more complex and well-rounded in crime fiction. I really appreciated the conversation that Autumn and I had a few years ago with Alice Bolin, who wrote an essay called Dead Girls. And it's kind of about what you just said, Samaya, about how um, she's made a lot, talking a lot about TV and true crime, but she was talking about that when men are the like investigators, like these are the kinds of things that happen and and there's like this patriarchal nature to their investigation and and all of this stuff which I thought was very interesting um, as someone who you know I have a very general casual relationship with crime fiction um, I read a few a year but I really love that conversation and it made me think about 
what you were saying, Samaya, about when women write crime, when women are in places where they are informing this kind of conversation or, or doing the storytelling, that there's just a, a different approach to it than men have taken with their crime fiction. Yeah, and I think one of the criticisms that's been leveled at male crime writers is that when they portray or describe violence that has been committed on the female body, it is indulgent and sometimes graphic. It's it's an element that exists without really there being depth to the person that the victim used to be. You know, the, the mangled, brutalized female body just serves the function of, you know, showing evidence of that violence. But when women write crime, you do get like a different sense of the way that the violence is written. There's a lot more, you know, the psychological aspect to it. And there is more of the, I don't know, like it doesn't feel as gratuitous as it does when perhaps a man writes a crime novel. And this is obviously a generalized statement. I don't mean to say that every man who writes a crime novel, you know, is doing a disservice to the way that women are written about. But I do think that it tends to kind of float that way. Yeah, there is that that tendency there. And there, you know, there have been men who've written very character-driven, well-rounded books, but most of the ones that um, you know, like in the articles that we'll have linked in the show notes, that women tend to write more character-driven stories. Like you think about even Tana French, right? Like she is very well known for her mysteries, and her mysteries are very, very character-driven. When I read her, one of her mysteries, when I read it, I know I'm getting to know the characters first and foremost, and that is just something that really fascinates me when we talk about crime fiction. Yeah, and I don't think that I'm a seasoned crime fiction reader, um, even though I do enjoy the genre and I have read it over the years. I feel like I'm not an expert on, you know, on the trends or whatever. But with certain books like the Lars Kepler series of books, uh, you know, Lars Kepler is the pseudonym of a husband and wife duo that write Nordic noir crime fiction. And um, what I like about their book is their work generally has this balance of like there being a lot of like that graphic violence that is particular to the subgenre of Nordic noir. And then there's also the psychological aspect, which goes deep into the psyche of the killer or just in general, the psychology of the events that are happening, like what has led to this, the human factor. So I like the balance. And I wonder if that's because you have both a man and a woman kind of working on creating these stories. It's very interesting. I would I would love to read a paper or something on that, you know, like what research has been done on this? Is there anyone who specializes in this that would love to write essays about it? I, I would love any recommendations the listeners have on that. That would be really um, that would be really insightful to read something like that. So, Kendra, tell us about your discussion pick, which I know falls under the Nordic noir crime genre. Yeah, so I'm very excited as this is my first, like, Scandinavian crime novel, Nordic noir, any of those. I have not read any of them before. So picking this up was something I really wanted to do. I really wanted to visit two different countries 
crime fiction subgenres. And so our discussion pick today is Quicksand by Malin Persson Gelito, which is translated by, from um, Swedish by Rachel Wilson Broyles. And this is a book about a young woman who is on trial for her possible participation in a school shooting. Her boyfriend was um, also a student there, and he brought guns to school and started the school shooting, and then she picked up a gun and shot him. And so now they're trying to figure out this whole thing during this trial, but then we jump back in time to the beginning of her relationship with Sebastian, her boyfriend, and kind of how she got there. And so we're jumping back and forth in time, and it's a beautiful like dual timeline kind of narrative that the author has going on and it just really worked and this novel was just so well well structured and it's a, it's a well-told story as well. Yeah, and I think there are like three kind of points of view that we get that is sort of, you know, showing us what led to the the school shooting. Then you have like you mentioned the the courtroom drama and you know you see the procedures and um, you see the battle happen in the court, you know, between the prosecutors and the defendants. And then you also have, you know, when Maya is in solitary confinement, so her thought process of being in that position and as she reflects back to what happened. So it reveals this very dynamic and like complex portrait of who she was. And, you know, like what are the events that kind of led to what happened? And Maya is a very interesting um, person to kind of take our hand and lead us through her story. She's she's an unreliable narrator, and this is all, like a very much in the style of like a confessional. Uh, and she also has some PTSD from the event, so she generally does not remember some of what happened. And it's also her process of rediscovering that for herself. And I found that a very interesting take on getting to know her as a character. And she has a lot of depth to her and how she tells her story. Yeah. And one thing that definitely stood out to me was the way that we have all of these assumptions or like preconceived notions of Maya, you know, knowing the basic facts of the, of her, of her life that she comes from a very wealthy background and she has a lot of privilege in life. So from the get-go, we do have these assumptions that we as a reader are also the judge and jury and we're kind of like getting to know this person. And I felt like throughout the reading experience, I was very much conscious of my own thoughts about her. Like, do I think that she did it? And do I think that she's guilty? And I mean, when we think about these issues, you know, of, of whether someone is guilty or not. So Maya is in a unique position because she's just turned 18. So there's also this question of whether you can fully view her as an adult. And as we'll discuss uh, now, Kendra, there's also that issue of, you know, the adults in her life. So when you're thinking about justice, when you're thinking about guilt or whether she's done it or not, you know, is she complicit in the crime? We also have to be mindful of her age and like her position in life, you know, so there's also judgments regarding that. Yes, definitely. Because 
all the adults in her life, they seem to be willing to shove any concerns they had about Sebastian under the rug because he's the right kind of boy they would want her dating because he is from one of the wealthiest, he's the son of one of the wealthiest men in Sweden. And so like, you know, when they meet, they're on like this yacht situation. It's like this very romantic thing. And uh, it's just, you know, they never, they, you know, all of them would say like, they never expected this to happen. He's such a good boy or whatever. Like there was that kind of mentality I should say about it. And I just wanted to shake some of the adults and be like, she is only 17. Like when all this is going down, like all my stars. Yeah. And I think that this kind of leads us to the wider concern in the story, which actually comes up as a subtle theme, which is about class and privilege and the social gaps. And I feel like the adults in the story from the very beginning, you know, Maya's parents in particular were kind of enamored. They were enamored by the wealth that Sebastian is surrounded by because he is the son of the wealthiest man in Sweden. And so they're kind of attracted to the idea of him. And there is almost this kind of like a mirage kind of situation that's happening where they see the glitter but they don't see what's behind it you know they don't really see who he is they see him for what his privilege is and I feel like their bias because of his wealth kind of puts her in a vulnerable situation where she then is you know in an abusive relationship and she's left alone to deal with it and doesn't really have any adults looking out for her and you can definitely see that discussion of class and privilege in her other relationships. She has a friend named Samir whose family immigrated to Sweden. And, you know, he is not rich and wealthy like the other kids around him, particularly the white kids around him. And you can see her relationship with him, you know, that she's known him for a long time as well. And it's just like this stark contrast to her relationship with Sebastian. Yeah. And I mean, with Samir, there's also this uh, conflict between them that comes up because, you know, being an immigrant, he has to work twice as hard as everyone else. And I think there is a part in the story where this is very directly addressed by them, by Maya and Samir. And um, he, you know, there is this idea that he has a good story to tell, you know, like his success is not just him having him being successful because he already had all the ingredients. It's because he fought for it or he worked hard for it. And I think it, this kind of like leads to the the theme in the novel, which is all about the stories that surround a person or the narrative that kind of surrounds a person like What does that person appear as? You know, like, what is their story? And I felt like the way that the case kind of took on in the media, you have that idea again of who is Maya and what is her story? I know that you have thoughts on this, Kendra, so I'd love to hear about it, about the way that the media portrayal kind of like presents Maya in a certain way. So tell us about, you know, that aspect of the novel. 
So at the very beginning of the book, we know that she is on trial for this and it is a high profile case. People outside the country even, it has this international fame. And I believe someone mentioned that there was over like like million, millions of hits when you typed in Maya's name into Google. And she just, it's like she was tried even before her trial started. And she talks about this at the very beginning of the book. And it kind of plays itself out throughout the book as we jump back to her like courtroom present timeline. And you can definitely, you can definitely see that. And one of the things we wanted to look at was the mini series as well, because um, it is, I think, a great adaption of the book. And this is something that you, they, they play with a bit more in the mini series because you can actually see like this playing out in her, her life in a, I don't know, it seemed much more upfront way, um, particularly as the trial progresses. Yeah, I really love the adaptation because of the way it kind of also leads up to the the courtroom drama. Because in the book, what you have is from the very beginning, we're in the courtroom. And we know that, you know, people are kind of dissecting the case and what happened. And they're trying to, like, figure out very publicly whether she was guilty or not. But in in the adaptation, you kind of really see it happen like a story from the beginning, middle and end, with, of course, flashbacks being incorporated into that. So, yeah, I also really love the casting, <laughs> like you said earlier as well. So good. Maya's dad was actually kind of pretty nice. <laughs> I compared to the book, by the way, because in the book, I didn't like him. But in the show, the actor who portrayed him was quite handsome. And I felt like, oh, my God, I really like this, this character now. (laughs) I mean, you look for all the all the nice moments you can, you know, when you're watching a crime drama, (laughs) you have to get the good vibes. Yeah, you know, I I love the casting like she had this ordinariness about her and of course the actress is is beautiful but the way that she plays the character and the way that she looks is not like flashy in particular so her prettiness is is more subtle and I appreciated that about the casting because she's often compared to her friend Amanda who's much flashier and also pretty but just like it has a different way about her and so I really loved that. And Sebastian, I disliked immediately in the book, but he was actually charming in the beginning of the miniseries. So I was like, oh, okay. In the series, yeah. 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 He was great. He was like, there was actually so much chemistry between them. Right. In in the adaptation. And one thing I really liked about the visual, you know, representation of the story is that we kind of see her turning into the person that she becomes with Sebastian. You know, the way that she dresses at the start compared to the way that she becomes more of a party girl when, you know, uh, to the way that she becomes more involved with him, you know, with his parties and stuff. Like, so you see her present herself differently because she's with him. It's possibly also because of the pressures of being his girlfriend, I guess, that she goes through that. I mean, it was, it's a six episode miniseries. 
and the pacing is great. The adaption is really faithful to the original. And I think it's just so, I enjoyed the book, uh, but I really enjoyed the miniseries. I think it just made certain aspects of the books pop, you know, of the story pop. And that was, I don't know, I was sitting there and I just watched it all in one sitting. Uh, so <laughs> it was, uh, it was very engrossing. Yeah, and I love a good courtroom drama, and this one definitely delivered. One of my concerns, actually, when you know, I was uh, when I first read this book, and also like when I read this book again for this theme, is the correlation of like a white terrorist and mental health, and I feel like it's always used as a cop out for why these things happened. But the way that the story handled it was very well done and actually the themes related to class and privilege you know that really accentuated the the why of you know what happened and I feel like it was well done in that regard yeah I agree and it was it's such a delicate topic and I feel like it was well handled that was something I was concerned about as well and there's also uh, you know, the fact that Maya is a white girl in this very privileged situation. How much is she culpable for these different things? And that's something that Avil explores. And it continues on with that throughout the book. And by the end, you're thinking about what is justice in this situation? What does that look like? And it really makes you think about that very deeply. To conclude, I like from my end, I would say that one of the things that hits you really hard at the end, you know, regardless of the outcome of the trial, is the fact that she has to now live with what happened. And that is what comes after. Yeah. You're not left with the feeling that all is well with the world. It's more like now she starts this new life where everything is different, whatever that happens to be. Um, so that was Quicksand by Marlen Persson Gelito, translated from the Swedish by Rachel Wilson Broyles. So one thing that I find is common between the novels that we're discussing today is that both writers are lawyers and have that expert kind of perspective. And both books also look at justice. And so the book that I've selected for my discussion is The Unquiet Dead by Osma Zihanet Khan. And it's a police procedural, which is a bit different to, um, you know, a courtroom drama in the sense that a police procedural kind of presents the, the procedure of the investigation. So it kind of is dealing with who did it, what was their motive, and you follow the detectives on the case. And so that is basically the genre or the subgenre that the uh, Unquiet Dead kind of falls under. And I really loved it. And speaking of adaptations, I feel like The Unquiet Dead is one of those books that definitely needs its own TV series. What do you think about that? Definitely. It's actually on my, like, most want an adaption list uh, because 
it, we talked about this in the first episode, but like her writing is so detailed. I could like see it as a TV series in my brain. Just all these little details. You could imagine these shots, you know, oh, it'd be beautiful. Yeah. And with a police procedural, you know, when you have two detectives who are partners working on a case, it's very important for them to have like a balanced perspective. In, the, in this series, and The Unquiet Dead is the first in a series of novels featuring the same detectives. So Isa Khattak and Rachel Getty, they are a, the duo that work on the cases. And so they are, uh, they're in the police, they're in the, they're in the Toronto Police Service. Um, and the branch that they work for is the Community Relations, which basically looks at crimes that affect minority communities. And what I like about this duo is that they have a really good chemistry in the sense that Isa is, you know, a man of faith. He is a second generation Canadian Muslim. And Rachel, on the other hand, is, you know, she comes from a troubled background. She comes from an abusive household and she is not, you know, she's not observing any faith, but she is quite an intelligent woman. And Although he is her mentor, he does give her a lot of space to kind of form her own opinion. And I feel like they really balanced each other in the way that they approached the case. So the aspects that he had grasp on, you know, with regards to uh, sensitive issues of faith and, you know, culture within the minority communities, he had a perspective of that. And then she kind of fulfilled all the gaps that he kind of, you know, lacked. So I really like them as a duo for a police procedural. And again, one thing I really loved about this book is the pacing and the plotting. I felt like it was so consistent and I never felt bored while reading it. I always felt like there were new clues that we could look at and, you know, try to figure out what was going on. And one of the things I really loved is that the novel kind of starts with a mini mystery that Rachel herself has to solve first because Isa knows more about the the case that they've been assigned, which is of this wealthy white man who fell to his death. And they're investigating whether he really died or whether he was pushed. And so Rachel has to figure out what's happening. And I really like the way that this investigation was kind of portrayed, you know, with regards to that. They they definitely make a great duo, and I really like how they're so different, but they really work. Um, like you said, you know, Rachel is a very secular soul, and so, but she has some great conversations with her partner about faith throughout the series, and that's something that I think is really great about their partnership. And it was really interesting getting to know also the Canadian, like, criminal investigation side of things, which is a bit different than in the U.S. And I, I just found that the whole setup really worked. And then she also has great storytelling ability as well. Yeah. And I mean, I don't want to give out any spoilers about this, but um, essentially what the story is about is that they are assigned a case where, you know, the, the, the man who's died, he might have a past that people didn't know about. So there's that mystery of who he was. And also there's the mystery of whether he was a victim or a villain. So what I loved about this book is the different aspects that, 
you know, she brings to the story, the different topics that she brings to the story. And one of those topics is the golden age of the Andalus, which is, you know, part of the Islamic history. And this kind of opens up that 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 theme of multiculturalism and coexistence, you know, and about how people from different faiths and communities can kind of live together in harmony. And in contrast to that, we have the idea of communal identity and, you know, nationalism that creates ethnic conflicts. So set against all of this investigation is the larger historical event that kind of runs parallel to this idea of multiculturalism and nationalism, which was the of Muslims in Bosnia. So what I appreciated about this book is the way that, you know, this case that Isa and Rachel are investigating is about a man who might have had ties to the the war in Bosnia and he might have been a war criminal. So it's really his identity that they're trying to determine along with the fact of whether he was murdered or whether it was just an accident when he died. Um, and so this case and this investigation kind of takes us to the historical event that happened in the 90s, which is, you know, the genocide that was conducted against Muslims in Bosnia. So it's a very recent chapter in European history. And unfortunately, I feel like there's very little awareness about what happened. And I'm not sure if this topic is properly covered in the school curriculum, because I wasn't taught about it. But being Muslim, like I knew about this over the years, like I've learned about it. So what is your like experience with, you know, the, you know, learning about this event? Was was it introduced to you through books or did you learn about it in school? I knew that it had happened via a lot of the documentaries I watched and just generally it's been mentioning a passing in world history, et cetera, et cetera. I was homeschooled, so I'm not sure what the public school system is like, but I did also remember learning about this in world history in college, though it was just like on a very cursory level. But one of the things that this book did inspire is to look more into it. And so I did. And also, um, Osma has some interviews online as well, which I'll link in the show notes, which she also talks about it. She has like a PhD in the study of war crimes at the time. And so she has all sorts of information as well. Yeah. So just to give our listeners a recap, this basically, uh, this massacre and the ethnic cleansing basically happened after the breakup of Yugoslavia in the 90s. And it basically led to ethnic conflict in Bosnia, uh, particularly in Bosnia, where, you know, you had the Serbs and the Croats, and you had Bosniaks who were Muslim. And, And what makes this a very troubling time in recent history is that, you know, when the massacre was being carried out, when it, the ethnic cleansing was being conducted and being very like it was done in a very calculating way, what makes what is troubling is the fact that there was no international intervention to help and to stop it from happening. And even the UN was complicit um, in, you know, what what occurred. And that's why, like, this is such an important topic to discuss and like learn about because when we read crime novels like we think of it as fiction but this book is so brilliant because 
Asma is bringing in all of this research and information about historical events that happen, and she's kind of grounding them in reality. And an example of this is the epigraphs in the novel. Um, Kendra, while you were reading the book, like, what was your experience, you know, with the epigraphs? And did you know that they were actually excerpts taken from real testimonies? I, I didn't know that, actually, until you told me about it. Um, earlier, and I, I mean, it definitely makes sense because of her background, but I think it's all more effective and meaningful, like, having known that now. Yeah, and I think that they lend a lot of impact and power in the story, um, because you really feel the gravity of the words, and I didn't know that they were real testimonies until I finished the book, and then I read the author's note and, you know, the the extensive uh, bibliography and notes that she'd shared at the end, um, and so... Some of them were actually verses from the Quran that I'd recognized while reading, but most of them were snippets taken from human rights reports or actually mainly from testimonies and letters written by survivors of the war. Um, And these were presented to the international criminal courts. Um, And, you know, I feel like their words were so devastating and carried a glimpse of the mindless pain and loss that they'd suffered. And using these testimonies, you know, was such a powerful move uh, by the writer because, you know, she really grounds the story in reality and she reminds the reader that this is not purely fictional, you know, that this story actually deals with larger events that happen and that are very real. And this is the world we live in, you know, where a possible war criminal might be able to reinvent themselves and, you know, pretend that they are someone they are not and live uh, a life that seems innocent, you know, but is really not. And so this kind of makes you think about justice again, you know, when this case is being uncovered is what is happening here? You know, like who is responsible for this man being able to get away with so much crime? So I'm really glad that I read this book because now it's introduced me to Isa Fatak and Rachel Getty, and I'm really looking forward to reading more of their cases from the next books. So yeah, that was The Unquiet Dead by Asma Zihanid Khan. Well, those are our two discussion picks. Um, if people want to go on and read more uh, crime fiction, which I definitely do, uh, where should they start, Samaya? I have so many recommendations, (laughs) but I'm going to try and like just give you a bunch of them. So most recently, (laughs) most recently, I read Revenge by Yoko Agaba, which was translated by Stephen Snyder. And it is one of the best short story collections that I've read. Um, And that is saying something because short stories as like a collection don't always work for me. I enjoy reading them individually, but I struggle to finish collections. But this collection, I literally read within a day and it was so thematically consistent. And I think what worked really well for me is that the stories are interlinked. So 
each story concerns a character or event that was mentioned in the preceding story. And they all had elements of mystery, horror, crime, and thriller. So it's really like a bunch of, you know, different experiences within the crime genre that you get with this book. Um, But it was mostly really, really creepy. And literally, I got nightmares (laughs) after reading this book. So yeah, that is my first recommendation for further reading it's revenge by yoko agawa so good brilliant book so my first recommendation is a young adult novel firekeeper's daughter by angeline Bully, and this is about a murder that happens in anishinaabe community and uh, a young teenager is shot and her best friend is the witness. And so it's about the best friend trying to find out what happened to her friend and the boyfriend who shot her and then um, turned the gun on himself. And so her dad is uh, indigenous and her mom is white. So there's that complication where she comes from this old white family in town, but she's also um, part of the Native American community there. So uh, it's a very fascinating mystery, would recommend. And I would say it's on the older end of YA, almost like a new adult. Um, so if you're giving that to a teenager, just keep that in mind. Um, and Samaya, so uh, what's your next one? So my second recommendation is A Death in Shonagachi by Vijula Das. This book was longlisted for the JCB Prize earlier in September, and I can definitely, I can definitely see why it's on the long list. It's uh, a literary noir and murder mystery um, that, that takes place in India. It's set around the area called Shonagachi, which is a red light district in Calcutta. So for those who don't know, a red light district is the area in a city where you have a high number of sex-related businesses that operate close to one another. So the events in this novel kind of take off when a sex worker is brutally murdered by a client. And since people have very little regard for the life and safety of sex workers, her case is pretty much ignored by the police. But other people, including activists and her co-workers, you know, they kind of start a movement to counter that and to bring to light what happened. So this novel looks at a few characters, including uh, a prostitute and an erotica writer who are caught in the web of the inter- of the underworld. So it's quite a brilliant novel and it will be publishing in the US very soon. So I think that people should definitely keep an eye out for it. And what's your second selection? So I chose a historical mystery, um, the Purveen Mystery series. This book is about uh, Purveen, who is one of the first female solicitors in Bombay in the 1920s. And so because they will not legally allow her to practice law, she practices in her dad's practice. And then he just does all the official like signing and stuff. And so I love this because it's very much feels like a cozy mystery in some ways. Uh, It's not very detailed or graphic in that way, but it's also very character-driven. It just has so many things that I really love in mysteries. And so the most recent book in this series just came out, and I dropped everything I was reading and read that book. (laughs) 
Um, I haven't felt that excited to read a new book in a series in a while. So it was really lovely uh, to come back and, and like Praveen feels like my friend at this point. So I would recommend those. They are so fabulous and they come out from Soho Crime here in the U.S. and they're a great indie press. I, I love them. I've actually got the Satapur Moonstone on my TBR. So yeah, I'm so excited to dive into that. And my final recommendation, although we all know that I have a billion other <laughs> books to recommend. So I've like tried to select a few different books for this. But my final one is Earthlings by Sayaka Murata, which was translated by Ginny Tapley Takemori. This is a horror novel with elements of fantasy and magic realism, but it also has like crime fiction elements in there. I genuinely do not know how to describe this book, but I will say that central to this story is Natsuki, who grows up being quite an imaginative individual, but some events in her childhood and adolescence become catalysts for the complete train wreck that this book turned out to be. It starts off a bit normal, but then you absolutely can't look away from what's happening. And, you know, there's quite a lot of dark and disturbing things that, you know, happen in this book, including assault, child abuse, incest, gender roles and oppression, and even cannibalism. So all I'm going to say is read it at your own risk. And of course, with I think all of the books that we talked about for this theme, there are a lot of trigger warnings for this book. Um, all right. Well, those are our picks for our theme of She Writes Crime. Uh, Samaya, where can folks find you about the internet? So my main online presence is Instagram, where you can find me as at samaya.books. And everyone can find me at KD Winchester. That's K as in Kite, D as in Dylan Winchester. And that's our show. And many thanks to our patrons whose support makes this podcast possible. This episode was produced and edited by me, Kendra Winchester, with music by Miki Saito with Isaac Green. You can find Reading Women on Instagram and Twitter at The Reading Women. Thanks for listening.